Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally a polder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And we are sandwiched right here on Sunday, January 24, Connor, between a big inauguration day yep. last Wednesday and an impeachment trial. Hooray! Coming up before too long. I guess Mitch McConnell's been working on Get around to it. Getting put off a little bit. Uh, let Biden hit the ground running. Uh, give the president's lawyers a chance to... Uh, Work on their briefs and prepare for the trial and so on. So we're going to talk about three things mainly today. Trump's pardons. Should they be challenged as obstructing justice, uh, silencing co-conspirators and witnesses? Or maybe they're illegal just because Donald Trump has been impeached. Interesting. Maybe we're, historical precedent for that. Yeah. We're going to talk about uh, whether an impeachment trial now is even legal. The Republicans have their talking point, which is, uh, you know, he's already gone. Uh, you realize that, right? Right. And just as a pragmatic deal, is it smart for either party to proceed with Nancy's dream of the impeachment trial? And finally, we'll talk about the president's inauguration speech. How's that unity thing coming? There was a, there was a tweet by a fellow who uh, said, we really ought to lynch Mike Pence. And people considered that a setback uh, in, in the unity I think that's a, a very interesting tweet, and I'm very excited to talk about it. Good, good. Well, well let's start with the issue of Trump's pardons. Um, there is a law professor from Northwestern, Steve Calabresia. He thinks pardons, like those of Mr. Bannon, should be unconstitutional. And he notes that uh, it is allegedly corrupt, a possible obstruction of justice as uh, the pardon might... Uh, impact uh, future proceedings in a way that would protect Donald Trump. Uh, Connor, what's your take? Oh, the endless uh, uh, politicization uh, of the, the pardon process. I My take is that I wish we could all just think about Get along? The, the merits oh, of these sorry. pardons as opposed to what their political impacts would be. And I think that's what most people are obsessed with. I think that the, the it might be um, it, it might be perceived as naive uh, to do so. Uh, but I, I think that we can evaluate them in the same way that we evaluate every other um, uh, criminal or civil trial and decide who we think the right, uh, what the right answer should be and right. who the, uh, the winners and losers should be without thinking about the political fallout. That's what I think. Well, to go back to the basics, the Constitution says the president has the power to pardon folks as right. to federal offenses, and there are no limitations, no restrictions. Now, you know, you can think, well, you know, what if there was a bribe? And I think most people would say, well, yeah, we'd look into it very seriously if there was a bribe. But other than something really extreme like that, there is one thing the Constitution mm -hmm. says, and that is, well, you can't get out from under an impeachment well, as a result specifically, of Specifically, and interestingly, the, the phrasing is... The president has the power of the pardon, and then it goes on to say a little a bit about what the pardon means, mm -hmm. and then it says, except in cases of impeachment, which has most of the time been interpreted to mean one thing, which is the president cannot uh, pardon himself when he is impeached. Right. 
So it makes sense. The president has the power of the pardon, except in cases of impeachment. And you're saying but, there's a kind of a creative interpretation. Well, let's to think what of another uh, interpretation. And this is not me inventing this. Let, uh, I'll say that the first president to use this interpretation of the pardon power uh, was Ulysses S. Grant. Okay, so so this interpretation, the other interpretation of this part of the pardon power and and what impeachment means is is to say, well. If a president has been impeached, that is, in case of impeachment, the president no longer has the pardon power. Thus, the pardons that he issues are illegitimate, are not valid. So what happened when Clinton was impeached, not convicted, right. and then he comes up on the last few days of his presidency and he pardons Mark Rich, the financier, everybody uh, hated, and, and it's been a stain on the Clinton presidency ever since. And then James Did anybody Col- say, hey, you shouldn't be able to pardon Mark Rich or anybody else because you yeah. were impeached? Interestingly, James Comey was the guy who was put to the task of evaluating whether the Mark Rich pardon was uh, invalid, illegal, He's whatever. Like Zelig. He popped up in every historical <laughs> he event. He does. He's just in the background somehow, right? So uh, James Comey uh, presumably begrudgingly says, oh, nothing wrong with the March, Mark Rich pardon legally, but that he didn't address whether George W. Bush could have overturned it on the basis that Clinton had just been impeached. So let's go back to the historical precedent here. Uh, if you'll, uh, uh, apolo- I apologize for my nerdiness if you'll indulge me. Oh, no, far uh, away. But to go into it, it's, uh, so uh, President Johnson uh, pardons- Which one? Uh Andrew Johnson, a long, long time ago, 1800s. Um, uh, President Johnson um, pardons uh, four people on his last full day in office. Uh, It doesn't matter who they are, but um, three of those pardons, uh, well, all four of them go out by horseback, naturally. Uh, (laughs) uh, The trains were busy. Right. So um, they're they're all being delivered on the last full day of Johnson's presidency. The next day, Ulysses S. Grant takes over the presidency and says, I'm undoing Johnson's impeachments because he was impeached when he granted those pardons and therefore they are invalid, which is exactly the same scenario that Trump is in right now. He but was Grant might have been drunk because we know That's that was a, a problem. True. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure he had sober advisors who were holding the wheel just like Reagan did in the end of his the end of the 80s. Yeah. Uh, wise advisors who were really making all the decisions at the, point, at the end. But uh the the wrinkle in this is that because they're all being delivered by horseback, only three of the four can be stopped. One of them actually arrives and is handed to the recipient of the pardon, and Grant acquiesces, and he says, look, the guy got it. He got handed the thing. I can't take it back now. Well, it's 2021. Pardons are delivered instantly via, you know, email or whatever, mm-hmm. or just like, I don't know, blasted out onto Twitter, and then the recipient of the pardon checks tweets if Trump was still, you know, allowed to, to talk on Twitter. Um so what is the precedent here? How do you resolve this? A lot of people would probably just say, ignore that part. It's a historical artifact, the idea of, well, we can't take it back once the guy's gotten it. That's silly. Um, and it was just a result of how slow communication was did the court Did any court weigh in on whether Grant had the power to, uh, because the guy's uh, messenger was not riding Seabiscuit, uh, <laughs> Grant gets to uh, withdraw that one? Yeah, so Grant successfully reversed all things. Uh, uh, three of those pardons um, by recalling the U.S. Marshals who were out delivering the pardons, uh, but the uh, and and therefore uh, those pardons ne- would never you know stand. Those they, the people weren't able to use them uh, as a defense. Now, if uh, uh, it, it's possible. Um, 
so so this is specifically Grant's reversal of uh of, of okay the guy's name is Moses Dupuy D U P U I who cares okay. whatever we don't know even I, I think he like defrauded the IRS or something I don't know why, <laughs> I don't know why we're letting this guy off but they did uh, uh they tried and then Grant reversed it and then it's challenged in court and then the court upholds it and says yeah the guy never received it and therefore uh it it isn't uh, it isn't a valid pardon because uh, uh grant was able to pull it back and that's a very technical uh interpretation they didn't say right. grant had the power to reverse pardons because the guy was impeached johnson was impeached they just said he never received the pardon and right. thus he was never able to use the pardon but now we don't think of a pardon as being handed in paper to the right. recipient so it doesn't matter whether people have received it we just think about this ethereal you know presidential like you know 11th hour commutation of a sentence uh, by a governor or a presidential pardon they stamp something they sign something and then boom it just happens right it doesn't matter that the person ever got it yeah it's instantaneous so what about the current crisis or controversy that is where some people say you know what it's really not right for trump to be able to pardon steve bannon or roger stone right. because essentially he's either uh, getting himself off the hook because these guys were right. allegedly cons- co-conspirators with uh-huh. him doing stuff, or maybe he's trying to uh, help them out and therefore maybe they won't uh, hurt him in future proceedings. And yet, I guess, ironically, by getting a pardon, somebody uh, can't take the fifth, because, at least as to federal charges, because of the pardon, and right. that might actually cause them to sing like a, a bird uh, against Trump's interests. Yeah, uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on here, but let's first talk about that idea of pleading the fifth. It is very powerful. And as I'm sure most of our listeners know, if they're listening to a legal podcast, they probably understand the Fifth Amendment gives you a protection against uh, against self-incrimination. That is, you don't have to talk to the police or in the court uh, in in testimony uh, in any circumstance uh, when talking would implicate you in a crime. You have the right to remain silent, as is codified in what we call now the Miranda rights. You have to be read your Miranda rights when you're arrested. So you'd be reminded, hey, you don't have to talk to the police. You can remain silent. You have that right because what you say can be used against you in a court. So you might want to shut up. Right. right? That is the the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. But if you're not going, going to be prosecuted for something, if, if there's some reason why you aren't you're aren't not going to be on trial, you know for sure you're not going to be on trial, like say you've been granted a pardon and thus are immune from prosecution, then you do have to talk to the police. You can be compelled to testify about stuff. Um, and this is, you know, of course, uh, very scary for a lot of people, because, for example, say you are pardoned of a, of a uh, of a criminal matter, um, but you might still be massively publicly embarrassed and your life ruined and and all the rest, um, then you might not want to accept a pardon. And there have been people in in history who have said, I will not accept this pardon from the president because— Now that's confidence. Yeah, because I would be forced to talk, um, mm-hmm. and talking might be, you know, worse than than uh, the, than the, the, the possibility, the maybe possibility that I'll be prosecuted for something. Um, you know, of course, if somebody is— uh, is is innocent. They also don't want to accept a pardon because accepting a pardon is is an explicit acceptance of responsibility for having done the thing that you did. You're accepting guilt, but saying despite my guilt, I'm I'm going to be pardoned and thus am, am protected um, uh, from prosecution. And this, maybe that's why Trump didn't pardon himself or his family members because right. none of them could be. bring themselves to admit that they did anything wrong ever in their entire lives. The second element that you just brought up about well, hold on. I think this is the most important part of the whole uh, podcast, but also whole you know issue here drum roll drum roll can a president pardon somebody who was really his instrument 
in committing crimes or uh, was in some way connected to him? Uh, is he covering up his own crimes? Trump covering up his own crimes by having pardoned certain people. I mean, par- Trump uh, issued pardons to Roger Stone. He issued pardons to Paul uh, to a. Uh, uh, to uh, Steve Bannon. Um, These people are people who he might be implicated in, uh, uh, Trump might be implicated in uh, if they start to get prosecuted. But that would be messy, wouldn't it? To to challenge a pardon. I mean, you'd have to say, okay, we really think the president was uh, implicated, so we're going to establish that in court, and we're going to say this is a a limitation on the power uh, to pardon, even though it's really not in the Constitution. I mean, that that would be kind of a stretch, wouldn't it? It's it's messy, it's complicated, but but there's there's really good precedent. Uh, I mean, there's good precedent for talking about all these things, because American history, uh, the the arc of American history is long enough. It might be a young country, but we've had a lot of corruption happening, right? Mm -hmm. So Edmund Randolph, a famous historian name from American history, said at the Constitutional Convention, this is written down during they were arguing about what the Constitution should say. Edmund Randolph argues that allowing a president to pardon even for acts of treason, that is really, really the worst stuff, is uh, too great a trust. The president may himself be guilty and the traitors may be his own instruments. I love that they spelled traitors with a Y, T-R-A-Y-T-O-R, because it's old timey. It's fantastic. Spelling was so much more, more fun back then. So uh, a bunch of people, um, uh, James Wilson, a delegate for Pennsylvania, later one of the most important interpreters of the American law, asserted that if the president can be himself a party to the guilt, he can be impeached and prosecuted. This is you know, very complicated uh, you know, stuff, but at a, bo- a legal legalese happening. But at the bottom of it, the idea of it comes back to the idea of a self-pardon. It kind of is. If, if pardoning co-conspirators exonerates you, it's a lot like... uh, pardoning yourself. Now, this also came up, of course, uh, famously with President uh, Bush, uh, H.W. Bush, right? Not junior, but senior in in the 1990s Mm -hmm. with the famous Weinberg. Is it Weinberg or Weinberger? Cap Weinberger. Cap Weinberger. Thank Mm -hmm. you, partner. So Kaspar Weinberger uh, was uh, pardoned by Bush senior. Uh, he was a former Secretary uh, of Defense, um, and he was on set to go on trial in connection with the Reagan administration's Iran-Contra scandal. If you remember, George H.W. Bush was Reagan's VP. So Reagan now—I mean, uh, Bush now pres has the option to pardon Caspar Weinberger before he gets prosecuted for the Iran-Contra scandal. We don't Caspar is in Caspar the Friendly Ghost. Oh, is it Caspar, not Caspar? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or Cap. You know, go with Cap. Cap works. Yeah, Cap's good. Uh, so—, so you know, as Reagan's VP, it's entirely likely that H.W. Bush knew what was going on with Iran-Contra. And there were suggestions that he did have some information and, he and did it have almost had big, bad political implications for him. If the, if he had information, that means he's going to get called to testify yeah. in Cap's trial. So he says but 12 again, days before the prosecution, oh, no, he's pardoned. You can't, ta- you can't take him to trial because I, as the president, would have to testify in his trial. And this is a big problem. I, a lot of people say this is a you know one of the scarier uses of the pardon power in American history. What a messy situation though that it would have been to try to unwind that. Hey, uh, when we uh, when we come back, we are going to talk about uh, the impeachment trial. Before we do that, though, I, I just had a comment about you just flashing in my head about spelling bees. You mentioned how spelling was different back in the 1700s. Yeah, more fun. And it just struck me, Connor, that you know when I was in elementary school, spelling bees were a thing. Yeah. And it was kind of like, to quote Rudy Giuliani, trial by combat. Half the little fourth graders <laughs> Don't quote Rudy. All right, would right. stand on one side of the uh, room and yeah. the other uh, half would stand on the other side. And the teacher would 
would say, okay, assign them each a weapon. Here's the word for little Timmy, first in line. And you miss the word and you're so embarrassed. So. And you hang your head and you slink back to your chair, okay? Oh. And she, she goes over to the other side and back and forth, back and forth. A bunch of people get things right, but a bunch of people get things wrong. Every single spelling bee yeah. resulted in 34 kids hanging their heads, Shame. knowing they were losers, yeah. losers. And one child yeah. triumphant like Tiger Woods with his, with his pump, you know? Yeah. And that, Connor, does not exist anymore. As you and your sisters were going through elementary school, I'd, I'd say, thinking back fondly to my memory of, of everybody slinking back to their, uh, uh, to their chairs, including me, you know, on occasion. And I'd ask, well, do you guys have spell? No. No, we don't have spell. No, nobody. Now, you no. want to explain to me why America has yeah. come to the point where we don't have trial by combat a, in the fourth grade. <laughs> very and have 34 question. losers and one very winner. Question. You know, I think my I may have uh, it's may have slipped my mind because the sort of a slip, spelling bee might not have been traumatic for me because I was probably, you know, OK at it. But what was traumatic in terms of trial by combat is I remember in sixth grade, my math teacher had a competitive a chart of 100 math problems mm-hmm. that you had to speed through and race and it was a race but uh, among everybody in the whole class and then when everybody in the whole class had had you know fallen uh, or rather the, the first person who the, who over the course of multiple of these races whoever was the fastest and you got points for being the fastest right. then had to go up against the teacher himself Ooh. and you had to race an adult and he always won Every time, a hundred percent of the time, no kid ever this beat him. This teacher is a sicko. He was a sicko, and it was brutal. It was traumatic. I never actually had to race the teacher because I was so bad. But the people who did race the teacher, it was just like they got like two, you know two thirds of the way through. They got obliterated by this guy because he's Sim- like a forty year old math teacher. Simple solution: fire him and bring back the uh, spelling bees. <laughs> Okay. Uh, when we come back, as I said, we're going to talk impeachment trial. But first, Connor, if you'd uh, let everybody know how they can rate and subscribe the podcast. Yeah, if you're listening to us, you've already found us once. But you want to find us every week. And that means subscribing to the pod. So, you know, go on whatever pod- podcast platform you use, probably Apple Podcasts, maybe Stitcher, maybe Spotify, whatever you've got. And go to the page for Too Many Lawyers and click the subscribe button. So you'll get a little notification every time. And every platform is different, but they've all got ways to rate and subscribe uh, and leave comments and all three of those options are super useful and valuable to us so please please help us out we'll be right back on too many lawyers this is too many lawyers i'm royal oaks i'm still connor oaks so impeachment trial it's so intriguing to me connor Uh, american history starts let's say you know the, the government gets organized 1789 or whatever and so from 1789 until 1998 there was one impeachment. That yeah. was Andrew Johnson right. in the mid-1860s. Just the one in over 200 years. Yeah. Now, from 1998 until now, we've had three. Now, that's you know 22 years. Three in 22 years, whereas one in 200 years. Does that tell us maybe, well, I don't know, polarization? Tells me sunlight is the best disinfectant. The more we know about government and the corruption of these big, bad uh, people, uh, the better. And I think uh, it's a it's a good thing that uh, people are learning more about them. I also, of course, th- agree that you're right. Po- uh, the, the impeachment process um, has been, you know, wielded as a political cudgel. I mean, look at Clinton. Like, 
politics uh, is a political and legal thing. We'll right. Just, we'll just say that. Yeah. All right. So the question is, is an impeachment trial uh, of Donald Trump even legal? And also we'll talk about whether it's smart for either party. So is it legal? Well, you know, smart guys disagree. You, you hear these uh, these super fancy law professors on both sides of the legal political spectrum making, you know, very cogent sounding arguments. There isn't any super strong precedent. There's no real right answer. Uh, but, but a lot of people think, well, yeah, uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't uh, try him and have a trial just because he's gone. I mean, we impeached him while he was there. Other people say, and I think this is probably going to resonate with a lot of uh, to regular folks uh, mm -hmm. uh, occupying maybe the, the middle ground in the political spectrum. A lot of people are going to say, um, you know, he's gone. Isn't, isn't kind of the main reason for a trial and conviction to remove him from office and he's already gone? And don't you guys have other, maybe a few more important things to do, like solve the whole COVID thing and, and give us our country back? So who knows whether it, it, it's legal or not? But I mean, one option is for Trump, and maybe he's already initiated this, he can he can sue, he can go into the federal court system and hope it gets up to the Supreme Court where maybe, you know, the three people who appointed him will remember. Uh, it'll be, it's intriguing, I think, to speculate how would the Supreme Court rule if they were presented the question, uh, should, uh, may the Senate try somebody who's already out of office. I mean, if they ruled for Trump, it would look kind of like payback to Trump. If, right. if, it would also look like interference with the political process, which I think the justices are really allergic to. On the other hand, it's it's a you know a pure, tough constitutional question, and that's their job uh, to make uh, the tough calls. How do you think that might turn out? It's tough. I think that, as you put it, the 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 middle uh, uh, of America um, it might be sort of torn. Um, and even though I think the middle of America largely doesn't exist, you're either for Trump or you're against him. So you're going to be, you know, have preconceptions one way or another. But I really think like you can make good arguments either way. You can think of, uh, say there are, as an example, there's a criminal prosecution for somebody. Um, they were convicted of murder. Um, we, that person then tragically, uh, tragically dies before uh, the trial completes. Do you go forward with the trial? Well, what's the point of going forward with the trial if the defendant is dead? Right. Right? Um, and some people might say there are lots of points to that. Well, you got to go forward and determine whether there could be an insurance payout uh, because insurance- Liability to a state may be a civil uh, right. liability. Yeah. I mean, there, there's lots of reasons to, pro, uh, to pro progress forward with this, even though the defendant in this case is dead. If somebody, if the CEO of a, your company embezzles money from the company and then he retires uh, when it, uh, it, is, uh, it is revealed or he's accused, he says, throws up his hands and he says, I quit, I'm out. And then they, you know, they, they try to uh, bring a, a criminal action against him. Of course, he can't say, well, I quit. You can't get me anymore. If they try to bring a civil action, he can't say, I quit. You can't bring me anymore. But let's think about, uh, say there's an internal process uh, inside the company, which might be more analogous to the impeachment process as opposed to like a criminal prosecution. And the company says, we want to do a certain thing. We want to censure this guy. We want to ban him from ever holding office at our company ever again, uh, even if the board of directors changes or something like that. Um, and the guy wants to defend himself in that process, and he throws up his hands and says, I already quit. You can't get me anymore. I'm not a CEO. You board of directors don't have jurisdiction over me. I mean, that's kind of like what this is what yeah. is happening here. And if you think about the implications, if Trump had done a very bad, no good, very bad crime the day before he leaves office, and then you know, knows that he's immune from impeachment and conviction as a result of that, then he knows he, he basically has a get out of jail free card for what, the last three months of his presidency? How, how much time do you need to run an, a, an impeachment and then a conviction in the Senate? We don't want people to have a free have free reign. Plus, 
presidents have resigned before they could do it well that on the other my hand office. though what if you know halfway through his uh, his uh uh uh, you know, a term with plenty of time still to impeach and convict him. Mm-hmm. He does a crime. He realizes he's caught. He quits. <laughs> and then he goes, yeah, yeah, you can't get me. Uh, well, what, is he just ha- immune? You have he's- to separate, though, the criminal liability from, from the impeachment liability. Because yes. you remember with Nixon, he allegedly committed crimes as a president. Right. Uh, the general idea is we don't prosecute a president during his presidency for crimes he committed during his presidency. Right. But after he's, he's out, they could have gone after him. And so if Trump committed a crime shortly before he left office, then whether or not he's impeached or removed from office, they could go after him on a criminal basis. So it gets murky, plus you got the civil liability. I kind of predict that if the Supreme Court is faced with this question, they'll say it's okay to try Trump. First of all, because there is a precedent in the sense that Ulysses S. Grant, again, his Secretary of War was impeached, and then he resigned, and then they convicted him. They tried him after he quit. And so there, there is that precedent. Yeah. It's kind of old. It wasn't He's the, not president, the president, but still. But it's there. Secondly, uh, some Republicans are pointing to the fact that Nixon, uh, after he resigned, uh, there, there was there was no Nixon trial afterwards. Uh, they theoretically could have impeached him and uh, tried him, uh, and they didn't. And, and the Republicans are saying, "Aha, they didn't do it." But it just means the Democrats, I think, weren't eager to do it. They didn't. Yeah, wanna... maybe they didn't have the political will, or maybe they just thought that they wanted to move on and present sort of a positive picture about yeah. what they were doing. Plus, as I mentioned before, I think it would look like the Supreme Court is sort of interfering with the political process, even though it's a pretty hardcore legal question. So, right, right. I, I'm guessing that probably they'll they would decide it's legal to try him. And it looks like uh, the, the trial is going to go forward. It's going to be fascinating to see uh, what Mitch McConnell does. I mean, he's been making these noises almost as if he'd just be fine with convicting the guy. Maybe Mitch is thinking, I'd like to disqualify him then after we convict him because I don't, I want him out of my hair in four years. But, you know, the, we, we have no idea if, if there are going to be 17 Republican votes to do that. Yeah, we, that's a really tough one. Let's go to the second angle of impeachment trial, and that's whether it's smart politically to try him. I think the Democrats' problem is that the GOP has a common sense argument. Gee, why try him when he's already been removed? Democrats can say, well, it's the principle of the thing. Uh, but, you know, in politics, when you explain, you're probably going to lose. And the Republicans, again, are going to be able to say, you know, you should have been spending time helping the American public. And also, uh, you know, wouldn't it be smart from the Democrat standpoint to let Trump stay in the mix? Because, I mean, one of two things is going to happen, both great for the Democrats. Either Trump's going to run in 2024, he'll split the party, and he will lose. I mean, he's he's absolutely not going to win in 2024. A clear majority of the nation hates this guy. And you know, if, if uh, another nominee beats him during the, the nomination primary process, well... Trump's people, whether it's 10, 20, 30 million people, are going to be, be staying at home, yeah. crossing their arms, yeah. and that then the Republicans absolutely win, so lose. So why wouldn't the Democrats... I think uh, I think you're right. I think there's there's a lot to think about in this in this sphere. But I think that the Democrats are focused not only on will they win an election in 2024, but they're also focused on what having to fight against Donald Trump in uh, in a general or even have Donald Trump in the mix in a primary, uh, a Republican primary will do to the race in 2022 and 2024 because the presidential election doesn't just happen in one year. The presidential election will is a process that will take years, and having Trump as a candidate would totally change the tone and tenor and conversation. It would it, you know, inflame the Republican base. It might you know 
lose uh, the Democrats strategically, if we're thinking only strategically, it might lose uh, Democrats races in the 2022 uh, midterms. Um, it, it just having him as, a, as an ener- energizing figure for all the uh, the Trump voters is problematic for the Democrats. And then you also have to think about whether just having Trump in the mix is so bad for the country that the Democrats are going to put aside what might be theoretically politically advantageous and think, is he uh, is he going to just poison our political <laughs> well and turn everyone against politics? And Democrats rely because they are the party of we know that government can work. We can make government work for the American people. We can help people. We can you know make things better through the mechanism of government to have Trump in there. You know, kicking everybody's sandcastles and then pooping in the in the sand and claiming it's his cat box that ruins the conversation it's about very, very unpleasant coming. metaphor. Yeah. I just don't even want to think. I want to. I want to. Well, I started. The I started with the sandcastles and then I just extrapolate because you know once took you're on there, a life what, of its own. Didn't what it? would Trump do in this? Obviously, he would decide that this was his sandbox and and poop in it. I mean, so, but this he's a guy who ruins the 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 notion the government can work for good because. It can't. Look at what he did. It's horrible. When Trump is in charge, it's a nightmare. And that taints, I think, the whole political process. There is an argument for saying, you know, Trump, we're focused on him. We're obsessed with him. But he's not really going to be a big factor in the next several years. He wasn't supposed to be in 2016. He wasn't supposed to be. But here's why I I may be right. In the off-year election coming up in two years, traditionally, the party on the outs who did not win the presidency uh, wins big. And I think right. the Republicans are, are poised to win big here. They sure. they have the big mo because in a big redistricting uh, year, uh, we've just had 2020, uh, they came through like gangbusters uh, at, at virtually every level except for the presidency. And so they're probably going to do very well whether or not Trump is in the mix in two years. And so they'll be kind of more muscular in I mean, the they did okay. sense. I well, hear you. They lost the presidency, the Senate, yeah. and the House, but okay. They, yeah, right, but they gained in the House. True. And they, it, they did much better, and plus in the governorships and the legislatures and so on. So they'll probably be fine. History tells us that, that they're really going to clean up in two years. But history tells us something else in four years. The Democrats are going to win re-election. Two out of every th- three times in the last 120 years— uh, when a sitting president runs for re-election, he wins. The mm-hmm. only time he loses is basically if there's an apocalyptic economic thing, like right. Herbert Hoover in the Depression in right. 1932, like George uh, W. Bush uh, and the economy went south and Clinton was able to, uh, to beat him and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, or uh, there's just very few situations for a sitting president. So no. Biden's going to win re-election. He's going to beat Trump. He's even going to beat, you know, whether it's Rubio or, or, or Mitt Romney and so on. So maybe you shouldn't be too, too obsessed with Donald Trump at this point. One hopes. I'd like that. When we come back, we're going to talk about Biden's inauguration speech. Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So uh, Biden's inauguration speech was praised by a lot of folks. Uh, Chris Wallace, uh, the... um, Guy on Fox News, who is the host of their, their Sunday morning show, their equivalent of uh, of Meet the Press. Uh, he said it was the finest inauguration speech he'd ever seen, and he's been watching them since 1961 when John Kennedy had his famous, you know, ask not what your country can do for you deal. So nice. high praise from him for, yeah. and from a lot of people. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, the unity theme mm-hmm. I- I- immediately within 24 hours w- was attacked by Biden's critics as, oh, what you're saying is you want us to agree with you, and 
you know, you're calling people, you know, white uh, racist, systemic racism and so on, white nationalism in the body of your speech. So it sounds a little bit polarizing. Mm-hmm. I guess the question is, how do you implement the unity idea when the two extremes don't really want to do that? I mean, uh, I think we need to wait and see the effect of Congress being closely divided as they are. If Joe Manchin and a couple of other Democrats, or even just Joe Manchin from West Virginia, moderate Democrat. You only need one. If he refuses to abolish the filibuster, and uh, as a result, the progressive initiatives are, are going to be stalled. And so this Biden compromise solution, uh, you know, does it really take hold? Because both uh, sides are realizing uh, that nothing is going to get done, mm-hmm. and they'll get blamed and kicked out of office if they don't compromise. So, so maybe that will happen. I think the Democrats have the, the biggest fear here that because they, they could lose in the off-year election, as, as I was mentioning. The Republicans, I think, maybe are in a stronger position because they can live with the coalition of the conservatives and the populists. I mean, the, the hallmark of the populists that were they went for Trump was anti-globalism. We want tariffs. We want immigration barriers. We want to protect our jobs. And the other hallmark is anti-elitism. And I think the Republicans, the conservative Republicans, they can live with keeping people like that in their big tent. I mean, the angry Trumpsters, if they're disappointed in four years, uh, I think they're going to go for a less than perfect GOP candidate in, in two years at the state and, uh, and uh, Senate and congressional levels. Uh, and in 2024, I think they'd, they'd bite their tongue and they'd go for that when they see the alternative is, is a progressive agenda uh, driven, driven by Biden. I mean, uh, what do you think, Connor? Do you, you think the, this unity theme is, is really going to be something that Biden can push? I think he wants to do it. I think that's his background. Mm, I think he's, he's a wheeler yeah. dealer in the Senate. Right. He's, he's not a big progressive, but do you think he can actually make it happen? He's going to push. You're right. It's definitely going to remain his message. He's not going to pivot. He, he thinks it can work. The problem being, of course, that um, his party doesn't want to unite with white supremacists. Like when when he preaches unity, it falls on deaf ears uh, when people are still concerned with the paradox of tolerance. That the idea that how do we how do how do we have a tolerant society uh, when portions of our to- of our society are themselves intolerant when they don't want um, inclusion. Um, so how how do we have this conversation? I mean. It, it's it's a very difficult thing to do. I think it's a good theme for Biden to be preaching, uh, but he can't let himself be constrained by the idea that we must be unified. The idea has to be we must make progress and we will, will reach out to the other side and hope that they are unified in uh, with us in our desire to make progress. But you can't put a you know a, a handcuffs on yourself and say we won't move forward even when we have the opportunity to move forward just because there is opposition there's always going to be opposition there's always going to be bad faith opposition uh, where people are just angling for political gain and you know totally ideologically so far away from you that while they might say, oh, yeah, yeah, let's be unified, at the same time, they have no intention of actually uh, reaching a meaningful compromise in, in any way. Biden is, as the president, a figurehead. Presidents are largely figureheads, even though they do set the agenda, appoint a lot of very important people and wield the veto power. They, they can help drive that agenda and they can help set the tone, but they 
you know, their message of unity doesn't have to be 100% reflected in the Senate. And that's why I think a lot of this sort of squawking where people um, on the left actually are unhappy with Biden's message of unity because they don't want to be you know unified with white supremacists. Right. You don't have to be unified with the, the worst of your of, the, of your opponents. Right. In order to be unified, you only have to be unified with the reasonable portion of uh, the other side. And if they want to reach out and do that. That's great. I think that a, a 50-50 government that's closely split actually offers the best opportunity for unity, even though it seems uh, ridiculous, because it will allow, in the same way that Joe Manchin is now kind of inarguably the most important man, it it allows every Republican to jump into that spot. And whenever Joe Manchin says, well, I might go to the right on this one unless you have to do whatever I say and I'm the most important man in America, it allows every single individual Republican to, on their own and solo, go over to the Democratic caucus and say, well, if you want my vote, you can do X, Y, Z, compromise conservative thing that I want. And then, boom, I'll jump on the- Yeah, uh, but man, the, they're going to get tainted. I mean, look what's happening to Liz Cheney, yeah. the congressperson uh, from Wyoming. Oh, you're right. This is absolutely- She votes for impeachment, and they're taking her jobs away from her. Yeah. Uh, she is really going to be why, shunned. This is why a guy, a guy like Mitch McConnell is so important, uh, because you have to whip, literally, they call him the whip, right? When, the person who goes out and gets the votes and makes sure that everybody in your caucus is going to, uh, gonna, you know, uh, st- stand together and, you know, hold arms and, and be a bulwark against the other side, because if any individual is peeling off, suddenly the Republicans don't have any power at all. But it it, it the, the chance still remains that, you know, Senate minority leader um, uh, Mitch McConnell um, will not be able to hold his caucus together as perfectly um, as he'd hope, because we are living in this perfect 50 50 split with Kamala Harris breaking a tie. I mean, you literally can't be closer. Yeah. You know, it's I think the objections a lot of people had to the inauguration speech after, you know, hearing the, the nice language about uh, unity and everybody getting a, you know, let's end the uncivil war and so on. I think the injection of race was obviously race is on everybody's mind after last year and Black yeah. Lives Matter and so on. Mm-hmm. I think it really struck a, a, a bad tone for a lot of people because, I mean, it was sort of a condemnation of, of the nation. It was a declaration that, yes, there is this systemic racism right. problem. I mean, there's a reason the word science is in political science, and that's because it's a combination of not only sort of touchy-feely political things, but also science, meaning let's use the scientific method, let's gather facts. Uh, you should have evidence to support a public policy, and that's hugely important because a public policy affects everybody Let's take systemic racism. We have racists in this country. Trump had white nationalists behind him. What portion of the nation uh, uh, falls into this deplorable racist bucket? Every society has racists. Everybody has murderers. Do we have a systemic murder problem? Well, maybe we do. Let's check. The science would tell us if we have a systemic murder problem. It tells us the nature and extent of the problem. And once we have the facts, the science, on the nature and the extent of a problem, we act on it. Or maybe we don't act. Or maybe we celebrate the fact that we've halved the murder rate every year for the last several years. So the problem is in political science, the political part drives the bus. And if you have a bias in favor of concluding a problem is systemic because maybe you want to reach out and get voters, then the temptation is to announce we have a systemic problem is, even without is, evidence. So how about 
let's get the evidence to solve climate change yeah. and racism and every other big problem facing us. Systemic racism as a term is so horribly misinterpreted by the right who uses it to throw up and pretend that the left is calling them racist when literally the definition of systemic racism is it ain't about individuals and whether they're racist. It's about whether you have a system in place that has bad outcomes for people of a certain race. That's systemic racism. I agree with Individual you. I don't think everybody race. uses it that way. You use it that way, but right. I don't think it's Liberals perceived that way generally. That way. Academics use it that mm, way. Maybe. That's literally what systemic racism right. means. That's what people created the term systemic racism. They attach the word systemic to it to, to say it's not about whether the police chief is himself a racist. We, right. When we put Mark Furman on trial and we say, you know, was he racist? Uh, he's the cop, you know, who found some evidence in the O.J. Simpson trial. Do you have evidence that he was racist? Absolutely. Yes. That's that's not a that's not a, 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 a suit about systemic racism. That's a suit about one cop and whether that cop is racist. And that is a serious issue because, it, of course, it's going to taint his judgment. The problem is when we look out at like the criminal justice system, we see how many black and brown people are in prison and for how long and for what crimes and who put them there. And we say, oh, no, it doesn't matter that the D.A. in one case is not racist. It might doesn't matter that. Kamala Harris is black and Asian. The issue is that she, you know, people when people who criticize her say the issue is that she was part of a system that disproportionately harmed black and brown and Asian communities. And therefore, she was part of a systemic racist. Nobody's saying Kamala Harris is racist. We're explicitly using the term to absolve the people who right. are involved in the system of personal responsibility and say, but hold on, you must know that if you're part of the system and it has bad outcomes, you should think about how your actions, de completely devoid of racial animus themselves, might contribute to racist outcomes, a racist system. And that's the problem. And so this idea that by saying there exists systemic racism in this country, in Joe Biden's uh, inaugural speech, that he was called Calling out uh, his opponents. It's pretty telling. It's Rand Paul going on Twitter afterwards and saying, how dare you say I'm racist, uh, uh, Biden? Biden went out there and said, racism is a problem. And when people respond to that by saying, oh, so you think I'm a racist, you're just identifying yourselves. You're telling on yourselves out there, people. Rand Paul, just delete your Twitter account. You're embarrassing yourself. It, it, he's not talking about you. He's talking about the system and how we fix America, which has a problem with race. Yeah, I hear you. I, I just think that from a from a political standpoint now, setting aside the science angle, I think the Democrats have some vulnerability. And I think no matter the, how the, you the, talk about race, if you say if if anytime you say the most innocent phrase systemic racism, they will use it against you and spin it and put it all over Fox News and say that that means that you think all white people are racist as a whole system. Understood. There's no way to to, I, to approach race and actually try to solve it if the opponent is going to be infinitely act infinitely in bad faith. And then you just concede instantly as soon as I they see, do. I see your take on this. I just think that is a practical matter. And I think evidence for this is in the results of the election last year. A lot of people in America, kind of in the middle, who are, are not bad people, who are not racists, a lot of people hear phrases like defund the police, open borders, Green New Deal, meaning lots of jobs lost, Medicare for all, meaning in their mind, socialized medicine with you know poor quality and shortages and long lines. And when you put a, as, as sort of a cherry on top of this, systemic racism and reference to particular races, I think it's an overall negative for the Democrats and it gives the Republicans uh, an opening. 
I will say, I, I think I think you're going to be proud of me here, Connor. I've, oh. I've come up with a way to tie together all three of our topics Ooh. today. Inauguration, yeah. uh, racism, and impeachment. Yeah. A- and here's how I tie them all together. Yeah. During the inauguration ceremony, mm-hmm. when Bill Clinton fell asleep, Kamala Harris was sworn in. Mm-hmm. She was sworn in by Justice Sotomayor mm-hmm. of the U.S. Supreme Court. And Justice Sotomayor pronounced her name Kamala. Oh. Okay, so A, we it's have to impeach Sonia Sotomayor. Oh no, we've been Sonia Sotomayor. Now we got to impeach you. Yeah, right. And secondly, this deals with racism yeah. because clearly, why else would she have mispronounced Absolutely. the name but totally. for, yeah. for racism? And Definitely. thirdly, it had to do with the inauguration. It was part of the process. That's so true. I beautiful. think I've really tied, tied it all together yeah, like with, with a neat bow. little bow. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty proud of myself, <laughs> but it'll wear off in about five minutes. So I'll be back to normal the next time we see you on Too Many Lawyers. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you.